So welcome to E-Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we're very excited to be joined by Dr. Anna Isabella Grimaldi, who's a lecturer in modern Latin American history at King's College London. Welcome to the show, Anna. Hi, thank you very much uh, for having me. All right, so this is an exciting show. Today we're going to be talking about human rights and the history of human rights and what the history what the history of human rights gets, gets wrong. So let's just start from, you know, what is the standard story of, of, of human rights and who tells that story? Um, right, so I guess the mainstream sort of narrative about human rights is that they started in the tradition of the Magna Carta, sort of having this uh, big enshrined volume of, of rules and laws and conventions and agreements. And the, through the ages, this developed within Western Europe. And one of the, the greatest milestones is always seen as the Enlightenment era, the rights of man, um, published in, in France during the revolution. Uh, and later on, obviously, the UN Declaration of Human Rights in um, 1946. And as you can see already from these, you know, small, small parts of the story, a lot of this, this, this story is, you know, taking place in Western Europe. And it engages with a very particular ideology, one that is uh, sort of built on the idea of the individual in particular, the idea of individual rights, political and civil rights, and liberal um, principles as well, in terms of the removal of the state or the state stepping back and not interfering with those individual rights. When does this story, I always learned the golden age was the 1970s. Why then? What was happening then? Right, yeah, of course. So you're picking up on, I guess, the latest milestone in the history of human rights. Um, And this absolutely is said to have taken place in the 1970s. And this is really the age of globalization, right? And this is when human rights become a tool that global citizens can start to use. And there are a number of historians who have sort of added to this narrative. Uh, I think the most famous one would be Samuel Moyne, who calls the year of 1977 the breakthrough year of human rights. And the idea is that this is the year that citizens across the globe start to hold states accountable for their human rights violations. So what this means is that citizens in the US, in Western Europe, in Latin America, can accuse states on the other side of the world for violating the rights of their own citizens. And in particular, these human rights violations refer to the state politically repressing its people. So things like political imprisonment or um, torture and so on. So all of these things are actually form the basis of the human rights declarations of of the past of Western Europe, which we've just spoken about. And at the forefront of this movement, this breakthrough in human rights, are two major themes. One of them is human rights organisations. So you have the rise of uh, NGOs, non-government organisations. And the most famous, which was founded in 1961, is Amnesty International, of course. And Amnesty International sort of defines this era of human rights for many people by essentially adopting political prisoners in other countries. On the other hand, you also have those great Western or global North powers bringing human rights into their foreign policy and into the way that they engage with other countries, in particular countries of the global South. Um, And 1977 was um, when US President Jimmy Carter announced that human rights was sort of part of US foreign policy. And so I guess the question is, 
what's what's wrong with this narrative? I guess what's wrong with this narrative is that it mostly focuses on actors and institutions of the global north. Um, so when I learned about human rights, um, I essentially I was studying Brazil and and other countries in Latin America and the way that groups like Amnesty International helped them or saved them from uh, political repression. So I was looking at the era of the 1960s when, uh, and 1970s when a lot of countries um, in Latin America were under military dictatorships. And what I went into my research expecting to find was that groups like Amnesty International and foreign states like the US, France, Belgium, the UK, all of these more powerful global players, I expected to find that they sort of rescued Brazilians and they got Brazilians out of prison and they Mm -hmm. put pressure on the Brazilian government. That wasn't really the case. Yes, they did those things. But actually what I noticed, what was going on underneath all of this is that Brazilians and other Latin Americans themselves were teaching Europeans about human rights. They had a very, very different story to tell. Should I just carry on here, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell us what that story was. What did you find in your research? One of the things that Brazilians were asking for in their, in their struggle against dictatorship was not just to be freed from prison and to be free of the torture and the disappearances. Obviously, these were really important things. But actually, they were struggling against a government that had marginalized the majority of its population, a government that was overseeing awful levels of of inequality, hunger, starvation, huge regions of the country that were in, in, you know, suffering from droughts and just being sort of left to their own devices to deal with that. They were also complaining against the government that put the interests of multinational companies above the situation of indigenous peoples living in Amazonian regions. So one of one of the the, the really big uh, points of contention was the construction of the Trans-Amazonic Highway in the early 1970s, which was displacing and and killing a lot of indigenous people in those areas. And Brazilians were and other Latin Americans were talking to the you know the groups in Europe that were offering solidarity, and they were saying, "Yes, we want to be released from prison." Yes. Uh, the, the government is torturing us, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on. And that is also about human rights. What you actually see and what, what, what I found was that those European actors that were, you know, trying to support the Brazilians were not just going in to save them, but they were learning from them and they were learning how to incorporate this new reality. Um, you know, the, the situation that Europeans didn't know, Europeans didn't have indigenous populations being displaced. Um, but but they learned from Brazilians and started together with the Brazilians to talk about these issues as human rights issues. So what this showed me and what this meant to me is that if we look in the right places, actually, alongside that big famous narrative of, of, of Western Europe sort of guiding the globe in their journey towards human rights and the human rights utopia, actually, alongside that, in the undercurrent, you have actors from the global south in very different ways teaching the rest of the world about human rights. I'm wondering how did the Brazilians communicate with the people in Europe and um, who were these people they were communicating with? Who were these actors in Europe? Like I said, this wasn't really the traditional spheres of or, or what where we would typically go to look for 
you know, human rights activism and solidarity. This wasn't the United Nations. This wasn't um, governments in Western Europe. This wasn't even necessarily Amnesty International or, or other big organizations like that. But it was everyday people um, like you and I love um, teachers, academics, priests, students, and you know a, bun- a bunch of other people related to these uh, communities, people who had just had interest in Latin America and in Brazil, journalists as well, people who had been exposed to Brazil in some way or the rest of Latin America and had some interest in it. But you know these weren't big decision makers, they were everyday actors and where they encountered Brazilians was through connections in Brazil directly. Obviously, other students, other members of the same Christian organizations, these journalists who are traveling across uh, the country, but also Brazilian exiles. So you have uh, uh, the Brazilian exile community during this period was actually not very big. Uh, at its best, there were about 10,000 Brazilian exiles, but a few thousand ended up in Europe. And they worked hard. They worked really hard to build up their networks and connect with the right people, connect with the big authors in the big national newspapers across Western Europe. They worked really hard to give as many interviews as they could and portray themselves as, as victims, you know, um, and, and sort of win the hearts and minds of, you know, the, the, the general public in Western Europe. Yeah, so it's it's really, you need to look in those places that are not so obvious. Um, and what that also means is that you need to be open to hearing these debates about human rights in a language that you might not be expecting. Yeah, well, I mean, let's talk about that a little bit. So it sounds, and tell me if I'm, if I'm misunderstanding, it sounds like what you're saying is that human rights violations, this new conception is not, it's not just about torture or imprisonment or being disappeared, but it's also about structures which create, living under structures which create widespread poverty and suffering. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So if we, I mean, if we strip human rights back down to, to the absolute core p- components, it's, it's about human dignity and survival, right? And by, let's say, the Western standards, the ideas of, of individual um human rights that work within a liberal framework, this is about civil and political rights. So for, you know, by this logic, the most important thing is, okay, well, if you have the right to vote and if you can, uh, you know, practice that vote without any interference, and if you have freedom from discrimination and so on, then your interests, your dignity, your human survival will be protected, right? That's the logic. But if we go back to that, the, 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 the starting point, which is human dignity and, and human survival, another way of looking at this is to sort of take a collective standpoint. And this is really what I found when I dug deep enough into Latin American critical thinkers. There's a, a famous thinker, a famous um, uh, lecturer at the University of um, Mexico, the National University, uh, Autonomous University of Mexico, Enrique Dussel, who wrote, um, who writes about the ethics of liberation and the way that he understands human rights and human dignity is that it's, it's a sort of collective ethical consciousness and responsibility. And that the only way we can really do human rights and, and provide them is by acting collectively and by some people having to give up their rights for others. And this isn't, 
completely alien to the United Nations Declaration, for example. We have social and economic rights there. Um, but they're generally sort of treated as secondary. They're generally treated as something that could be become a bit too politicized, right? You start asking for too much in terms of social and economic benefits, then it becomes a left-wing propaganda issue. But if you, if you take it back to those bare bones of human survival and dignity, that is another way of looking at it. And that is, that is how the Brazilians, I think, were, were sort of portraying the issues that they found at home, you know, the mass misdistribution of wealth within the country, um, famine, poverty, lack of education, lack of uh, sanitation, um, premature deaths, discrimination based on race and ethnicity, discrimination based on gender, all of these things, you know, that usually wouldn't necessarily be spoken about as a human rights issue at that time. Brazilians were coming forward and saying, no, this is part and parcel of the same thing. We're being tortured because we're fighting against these things. It's all part of the same sort of machinery here. So we can't fight against torture and imprisonment and disappearance and, and our political repression without also fighting against those bigger structural um, sort of economic issues. I'm wondering how important dependency theory was in shaping the ideas of, of the Brazilians who are pushing for a new narrative. And then um, if it is important, you know, maybe you can explain what dependency theory is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would actually say dependence, dependency theory, I mean, it did quite well in terms of how, how much attention it gathered. And it did very well within those sort of highly institutionalized spheres of the United Nations, for example, um, and, and sort of World Bank and the IMF. You know, they took those ideas quite seriously. Um, and that was quite an achievement for, you know, Essentially, dependency theory was was a bunch of Latin American scholars coming together with quite a critical analysis of of the global economy, and somehow that was taken on board. It's so so the way that dependency theory structures itself essentially it's it's the idea that there is a core and a periphery in the globe, right? Um, the core countries are those uh, great Western nations uh, that at any given time are, are sort of dominating global trade and, and global finance. On the other hand, you have the peripheral nations, and these nations are the global south, essentially. Um, the global south is obviously a contested uh, concept, but for, um, for sake of ease, we use it here to talk about those countries um, that generally started their, their integration into the global economy uh, through exporting, you know, sort of uh, uh, one particular product. And these countries, their development and their industrialization was completely dependent on the core countries importing goods, importing goods from, from them, those primary goods, and then exporting uh, uh, to those countries machinery to, to, to sort of feed industrialization. It's this very clear relationship where the beneficiaries of those core countries um, and the losers in the situation are those peripheral countries. And dependency theory, yes, that became that became a very important way to say to the world, look, there is another way of looking at this. But to come back to your question, I guess, I wouldn't say dependency theory was necessarily the most influential here. Brazilian academics, yes, they used it to talk about the situation in Brazil. But really, this was, this was about ethics. This wasn't about sort of having... Uh, you know, the right language and 
conceptual framework to talk about mm-hmm. uh, uh, the economy in Brazil. This this was about what was morally right and what was the Brazilian population's responsibility, the global population's responsibility, and uh, state responsibilities to do with you know our collective ethical uh, consciousness, right? The the survival and and human dignity of of humankind. And I would say that the the real core and and the real uh, source of a lot of these ideas actually came from the church. And this is an interesting one, because this is one that I guess I've struggled to sort of, or I I did in the beginning at least, sort of struggled to understand in the context of the, the Latin American dictatorships. On the surface of it, what you find often is that the church and 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 in Europe actually that the church often takes the hard line of the state is very quick to be repressive and sort of revert to very traditional um you know family values concepts about you know gendered roles and so on and so forth and in Brazil just like in other latin american countries just like in spain and portugal under franco and salazar you know the church did play that role but there was again this undercurrent, this other side to the church that was professing something very different. It was it was preaching about liberation theology. And this, I think, was sort of at the core of um, the human rights ideas that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for folks who are unfamiliar with this idea, what exactly is liberation theology? So liberation theology basically is a, a sort of idea about the role of clergymen and and Christians, Catholics, in alleviating some of the things that we're talking about, right? In in liberating people from their situation of oppression, their situation of extreme poverty, of, you know, lack of education, of illiteracy. And it was really a reinterpretation of scripture, a quite, you know, threatening and dangerous one that said, actually, we're not meant to be apolitical as as leaders of the church, as members of the church, we're meant to go out there and actively help the poorest be on their side and help them climb out of their situation of oppression and poverty and so on. And the the mainstream sort of orthodox wing of the church found this, like I said, to be uh, sort of quite quite a threat. But it it helped. I guess it helps bring about another way, again, of, of looking at the situation of those poorest. So without actually critiquing the government or, yeah, so without necessarily critiquing the government or fighting the fight of, you know, the militant left or uh, getting involved in, in uh, urban guerrilla warfare, really important members of the church were able to stand up and say what is going on and what I can see amongst the poorest populations is uh, uh, you know a, a violation of their most basic dignities and as a representative of the church I cannot stand by I have to actually go and and be on that person's side and, and help them out of their situation um, and, and this is that like I said again that collective ethical consciousness for the I guess speaks to human rights and it's it's these ideas and and that analytical framework that the brazilians were taking to europe with them so yeah i mean i think one of the things that you you bring up one of the people you bring up really interesting people you you bring up in your piece is guido hocha let's talk about his work a little bit what was he doing and, and how did i don't know how did his work 
show or explain to people outside of Brazil what was happening under the dictatorship? Um, yeah, so Guido Rocha um, is just one of the many uh, exiles that I sort of followed and, and try to understand, well, not just what they were saying about human rights, but sort of where they went and, and who they spoke to. I mean, all of this still needs to be uncovered. But Guido Rocha, I think, is a, is a really great example here because his work was not textual. He didn't write letters to Amnesty International and he didn't stand at, at, at UN meetings and um, talk about his, uh, you know, experience as, as uh, a Brazilian and, and the torture that he suffered. He was a sculptor. So his, his communication of ideas about human rights and human dignity was very visual. It was embodied. And as I said earlier, that's something that we need to look out for. So, you know, those, those discussions about human rights don't necessarily happen within uh, the, the, those spheres of the UN and other big organizations. Sometimes they happen on, on this very ephemeral basis that they'll appear in images, in acts, um, in, in, in protests, in chants, etc. And for Guido Hosha, his activism, his, um, his way of talking about human rights was through his sculptures. And I think Guido is, is, I mean, he was particularly connected to the church in a way that a lot of other exiles were not. So I think he's a really good example here. It's, um, it's quite a, a very direct connection to the church that he has. And he was concerned with the situation of uh, the, the poorest regions in the country. He was concerned with the situation of landless peasants, people who were migrating from the really dry backlands of Brazil to find work in the industrial cities. You know, these people who struggled to feed their families, who struggled to eat, who struggled to read and write. That was really what shaped his politics. Um, but at the same time, he was also a political actor, right? Um, and he was being sought by the dictatorship, by the, the, the military apparatus, because he was speaking out against the dictatorship. So on the one hand, he was trying to support um, these Brazilians, these marginalised Brazilians who were suffering in terms of their socioeconomic situation, their human dignity. But on the other hand, he was one of those political um, uh, victims of repression. So he was uh, sort of uh, he, was, he was imprisoned a number of times. It's, uh, it's, it's a long and complicated story. He was imprisoned in Brazil. He escaped Brazil, got to Chile, was imprisoned in Chile, tried to escape again, hid in the Bolivian embassy. The story uh, gets quite complex, but this is a story of many exiles at the time. And eventually he makes his way to Switzerland. He gets a scholarship that is paid for by the church over there who has you know, connections with the liberation theology wing in Brazil. And he, he gets to Switzerland and he continues his sculptures. And it's, it, it's always very hard to sort of describe these things and do them justice. But one of the sort of series that he worked on were um, uh, uh, sort of sculptures of Jesus crucified on the cross. Um, so typical image of, um, you know, uh, Jesus nailed to the cross. Um, sort of in you know a, a lot of pain and agony um, wearing the crown of thorns all of the typical imagery associated with uh, with, with Jesus sort of dying for the sins of everyone else but at the same time he made some very deliberate choices that really reflected again his dual position as someone who uh, 
on the one hand, was thinking about the marginalized masses in Brazil, the landless peasants, uh, and on the other hand, was, you know, thinking about his position as uh, um, someone that was politically repressed and uh, who was imprisoned and tortured. And these sculptures of Jesus, he has, um, well, the material that he used to make them with was burnt plastic. And this was a reference to some of uh, the torture techniques that were used in Brazil by um, military officers who were taking part in torture sessions, uh, the, the, the electric shock. So he would you know, melt the plastic with um, uh, uh, electric wires. But he also, um, these images of Jesus are of a really emaciated, starved human being who is nothing but skin and bones and mm-hmm. um, whose you know, facial features are meant to represent those impoverished peasants who live in the backlands of um of brazil and those you know drought-ridden areas and who don't have access to clean food and water um and so on so he's he's very very deliberately bringing these two topics together and saying you can't talk about one without the other these are both a matter of human rights i'm wondering you know how the world would be different if when we were children we learned about human rights in the way that you're presenting it, if we had a broader definition of human rights and what are the barriers to conceiving of human rights in this way? I mean, is it, is, is it amnesty? Is it the UN? Is it the countries of the global North? Just a failure of imagination? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, this is it. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, this is, this is what I try to do in my classroom is, is bring these underrepresented narratives to the table. And well, First of all, ask students what they make of it. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's hard to say what the world would look like if we'd all grown up with this understanding. Um, but I think I think it's really important that, well, it's important to think about these things in order to not alienate people, right? I I've I've gone into secondary schools and even primary schools in the UK to talk about this, and you know, I go in and I say, right, we're going to learn about human rights. And the kids switch off. All right, human rights. It's, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's one of those things that barely affects them. So they think um, and that they can't relate to. And this is a thing that politicians do and that, um, you know, takes place in, in those institutional spheres that they'll never access. So it seems something that's really, really alien to a lot of people. But I think by bringing in these narratives and saying, no, actually, people's everyday activism and and rebellion and uh, criticism can also be a human rights practice as well. I think that's really, really important. Um, And to to, to sort of show people that those practices and those definitions of human rights are are created and constructed in all sorts of places. And anyone can, can be a human rights actor in that sense. In terms of like where this, where this goes and where ideally this fits in with what, what we currently have as a human rights framework in terms of the UN and so on. Um, I mean, a lot, a lot of these debates are reaching sort of higher spheres of academia, um, of, these, of these big institutions, you know, slowly, slowly, the, the, the UN has sort of incorporated the language of sustainable development, for example, and, and it's tried to draw from uh, sort of the experiences and the situated knowledge of Global South um, populations 
to sort of write up its understanding and, and its treatment of sustainable development. I mean, we've got a very, very, very long way to go, but slowly I think these things are sort of reaching, um, you know, the, 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 the top, let's say. But there are a lot of barriers, as you say. I think there, there is still a sort of mainstream discourse and there is still a very, very fixed narrative about what is okay and what isn't okay in terms of human rights. And one of the things that isn't okay is anything that might look a bit too left wing. Um, and, and we can we can talk about definitions, obviously, but I think it's really important to say that a lot of these actors that I'm talking about from the global south, they're often dismissed because they also associate with socialist ideas, or they might, you know, more literally be associated with political parties on the left. And it's seen, it's 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 unseemly, right? You you don't you don't make politicized comments like that when it comes to something neutral and universal like human rights. And I think that's really the mistake, because the point is talking about political and civil rights and individual rights, that is politicized in the first place. And if we say that we you know we, we we can't talk about inequality as a human right because it's too p- politicized and and you know it might in, it might inadvertently sort of support left-wing ideas, then we're really missing the point. I think we need to look past those criticisms and those assumptions and those very easy dismissals of ideas to sort of incorporate new human rights discourses. The last question that I'm asking all my guests is what is the thing in the world right now that's making you most optimistic? Oh, wow, that's that's a good question. What's making me optimistic? Um, well, I think I think um, what I'm really enjoying right now, and this is, I mean, this is not necessarily a, a, a worldwide phenomenon, but I think we can't always, as individuals, change the world or see <laughs> a world change <laughs> happening. Right. Um, but I've 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 been taking some of my students into um, these political pamphlets, uh, these archives where essentially this is where I did most of my research. And and this is a lot of the documentation on um, Latin American and and Brazilian uh, solidarity networks that I guess some of the individuals that I've been talking about already. Um, And I've taken them into these archives and they're opening these boxes of of, of stuff, of material that is, you know, these are remnants and artifacts of all the human rights activism that was happening 50, 60 years ago. and just seeing the excitement on their faces and just seeing how much more willing they are to dig through those boxes and talk about them than they are, you know, doing their own essays, their own assignments, um, is, is just really, really heartwarming. Um, and, you know, we're going we're gonna to be curating these items and, and making an exhibition and sort of bringing them to the public. Um, and I think, you know, th- those kinds of things give me hope um there are really practical ways that we can bring the next generation sort of into these narratives of human rights and and bring them physically into contact with the past of this human rights history this one that is you know untold 